Welcome to Radio Tambua, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. I have been privileged to have the topic entitled From Cults to Christ, which I would like to share with you especially as we look at Paul's letter to the Colossians, with a specific emphasis on Colossians chapter 2, from verses 16 to 23. The letter to the Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he is in a prison in Rome. Apparently he has heard about the condition and the circumstances the church is in through one of the brothers in the church, Epaphras. And this letter written as a response to what he has had, basically has two important things it talks about. The need to address and identify false teachers and their teachings, and the need to know and understand Jesus for who he is, what he has done, and how he becomes the answer to the challenge and the danger of false teachings. So simply put, you could call Paul's letter the Colossian Challenge, and the Colossian solution. And so as we look through this letter, let's read from Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 to 23, and hear what the Apostle Paul really is saying. From verse 16 he says, That therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not test, do not touch. These rules which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. The Apostle Paul has heard about the plight in the church at Corossi, and in writing to them, he reminds them of the need to identify and understand false teachers and their teachings that they may not fall victim to their deceptive strategies. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says that I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. He addresses the false teachers Men with fine-sounding arguments, seemingly plausible, but men who distort, who deny, 
who doubt, who divert, and, and take people away from Jesus, who is the sufficient Savior and Lord. Even though these men may appear convincing by their smartness and trickiness, actually their claims and credentials are false, and Paul wants them to know that, that through deception they will seek to rob you, to rule you, and to ruin you. And how should you respond to that threat? That as believers, we are to resist and respond to these false teachers, especially as we proclaim Christ. In verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul says that therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Why does Paul put an emphasis on continuing with Jesus just as they received him? Because these false prophets and teachers, in one way or another, are trying to diminish Christ by exalting other things other than Jesus himself. They are not necessarily saying you don't need Jesus, and that's where the danger comes in, that most false teachers will not necessarily deny Jesus as Lord. But they may distort his identity, they may distort his work, and take you off the mark of truth. In like manner, we see these false teachers claiming that there are several other ways through which you can become a Christian or through which you can maintain your salvation above and beyond what Christ has already accomplished for you. In these passages we've read, I would like to point out at least three different ways in which these false teachers were threatening the church at Colossae and the reason why Paul writes to them, presenting Christ Jesus as the sufficient answer or antidote to false teachers and their teachings. One of the threads, we find it in Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, where the apostle Paul talks about the challenge of legalism. Legalism is an attempt to be holy by self-effort. And false teachers were claiming that there were additional requirements for maintaining your salvation. Yes, Jesus has saved you. Yes, Jesus loves you. Yes, but you know what? You need to add this and this and this in order for you to complete your salvation. In these passages, we see them forbidding things that God has permitted, and in some other way, permitting things that God has forbidden. Paul talks about their call to observe festivals and eat certain particular types of foods. He warns them about the rituals, the rules, and the regulations that are being imposed on them as a way to enhancing or maintaining their salvation. And Paul reminds them that they are to be on alert and not let anyone act as their judge. In regard to these things, especially because they already have embraced Christ Jesus, who is our sufficient Savior. Now, what are some of those examples of groups or even particular teachings that fall under what Paul is discussing in these two verses? Well, we could think about groups like Seventh-day Adventism. Most of you may be familiar with this group or have heard about Ellen G. White, who was the prophetess of the movement. 
In Seventh-day Adventism, there are so many regulations or do's and don'ts, if you may call them so, that are thought as things that maintain your salvation or that are necessary for you to complete your salvation. Things like Sabbath regulations, what day of the week are you supposed to go for worship? Some Seventh-day Adventists, if you've met them during their proselytization meetings, you may even notice that they actually claim that the only day that is acceptable for God to worship is Saturday, which they claim to be the Sabbath day. And that Sunday worship or worshiping on a Sunday is actually the mark of the beast, and ultimately the day on which you worship will be the dividing line between those who belong to Christ and those who don't. In addition to the Sabbath regulations and restrictions, they have rules like no use for alcohol, no caffeine, no tobacco, no unclean meats, and several other additional regulations, which in and of themselves do not serve, never did, and never will, yet are presented as though without them salvation is not possible. But we also have the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You may commonly know them as Mormons. They also have additional requirements on top of salvation. Things like no drinking tea, you cannot drink coffee, you cannot drink liquor, you cannot use tobacco. Now someone has said that people who usually forbid what God has permitted will end up permitting what God has forbidden. And most cultic groups who will add other things to the essential teachings of the Christian faith, in most cases, will take away from the forcefulness of the teachings of the Christian faith. And that's why we need to be very watchful. We have other groups like that follow the teachings of William Blanham. Most of you may have heard of William Branham as one who claimed to be the prophet of the end times. One of his teachings were that baptism is only valid if performed in the name of Jesus. I have also known several other groups or cults that claim that baptism is a requirement for salvation and that unless you do it in the name of Jesus only, you actually can not be saved. So baptism becomes like the requirement for salvation or the means by which one is either saved or is maintaining his salvation. But then moving on from verses 18, we read about another category of false teaching that Paul warns the Colossian believers against. The teachings that overemphasize mystical visions and special revelations. So we have false teachers in verse 18 who are claiming special revelation above and beyond the Bible. In fact, calling the Colossian believers from the centrality of scripture to visions, to dreams, to worship of angels. And Paul not only points out that this is a very dangerous teaching, but he says that the kind of false teachers who promote this teaching are unspiritual in their minds, are puffed up by pride, and in fact they have been disconnected from the head, who is Christ Jesus. And therefore, he warns the Colossian believers to make sure that they are not taken captive, to make sure that they are not disqualified from their price. Again, looking at this kind of teaching, 
we are reminded of Seventh-day Adventism. Ellen G. White, as you may already know, had several writings that she gave out to her followers. And these writings were considered divinely inspired as the scripture itself. Ellen G. White often boasted of an accompanying angel and claimed through this angel she received revelations and messages from God. But not only that, you also have William Branham. In 1963, he claimed that there were seven angels who were commissioned to open the seven seals. Now, you will notice that most people who follow Branham talk about a certain cloud that they claim represented the seven angels. Branham claimed that the seven angels formed this cloud formation. Later, it was actually discovered that this was smoke from a missile that was launched by the Air Force. But do you know that even today, Branham might still believe that this was a picture of the angels? And of course, we are not forgetting Mormonism again, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a church that largely is established on the revelations and visions of the prophet and founder, Joseph Smith, who allegedly received visitations from Jesus and the Father, received angelic visitations from the angel Moroni over 20 times he mentions so, received visitations from Peter, from James, from John, even from John the Baptist. Then you have the Jehovah's Witnesses. The governing body of the Watchtower Society claims to operate by angelic direction. But you may also remember that while they claim that they have angelic guidance and direction, they are known for a string of failed prophecies about the return of Jesus. In 1878, they predicted the return of Jesus, and of course he didn't come. They did the same in 1914, in 1925, and in 1975, and as you can imagine, Jesus still has not come. But these messages were delivered in the name of we received revelation, we received a vision, or an angel visited us and told us something from the Lord. But what about other groups like the World Faith Movement? Now many of you, I'm sure you are familiar with the number of World Faith preachers, especially with the promotion they get on TV and radio stations today. The list is endless, from Benin to Sadhu Selvaraj to Shepard Bushiri to other commonly known word faith preachers. But what is it that they actually say? The Lord spoke to me. I got a vision. I have a dream. I have some mysterious message that no one else knows except me. God has revealed to me what the future will look like and the only way you know God's will concerning your future is if you come to my church. So many teachings of the kind in our day and as you can see, this was not just a colossal challenge but a challenge that faces every church in every age which is why you and I need to be on the lookout and see what we can learn from the Colossian challenge, but even more importantly, the solution that Paul gives the church at Colossae. But there is another teaching from verses 22 verses 23, one that you would call ascetic living. And here we see false teachers claiming special categories of spirituality based on human effort, sacrifice, and self-imposed suffering. 
claiming that there are certain things you need to do. There is a way you need to rigorously use or even harm your body. And the more you suffer or experience pain on account of Jesus, the more holier, the more anointed, or the more spiritual you will feel. Now, like in Adventism, for instance, they have unique Sabbath regulations, some of which we've mentioned already. They have rules like you cannot pray while standing, you are not supposed to watch movies, you cannot go dancing. In fact, as you look through the writings of Ellen G. White, you will notice that she sold spiritual control over nearly every aspect of her followers' lives. Discouraging sex within marriage, declaring condemnation over things like life insurance, membership in labor unions, dictating how you pray, and so on and so forth. But all the while teaching that these things make you a better Christian, or perhaps make God to love you more than he did before. You have Jehovah's Witnesses restricting their members from involvement in sports, from higher education, from birthdays and holiday celebration, and many, many more. And to all these teachings, Paul not only issues a warning against them, but provides an antidote in the sufficiency and centrality of Christ. Notice that to the challenge of legalism, he warns these brothers saying, Let no one act as your judge. You have received freedom in Christ Jesus. These people who are proposing or teaching additional requirements for maintaining your salvation are taking you back into the shadows, which is why Paul says that now that Christ has come, who is the substance, who is the reality that fulfills the shadows? There is no reason to go into the do's and the don'ts about foods and festivals, about rules and regulations. Let no one act as your judge. To the charge of mystical teachings and visitations, the Apostle Paul says, let no one deprive you of your price. To the charge of ascetic living, Paul says, let no one impose their decrees on you. Let no one tell you what you can handle or test or touch. Why? Because you have already died in Christ to these elemental forces of the world, to these rules, to these do's and don'ts. You have found fullness and freedom and fellowship in Christ. What you need therefore is Christ whom he calls the reality against the shadows they present. Christ who is the head against those preachers who are disconnected from him. And Christ who is sufficient against every man-made effort that seeks to maintain salvation or to promote sanctification apart from Jesus who already paid for this. Now, you might be there and you are saying, thank you for telling us about these teachings and warning them about these kinds of groups. But how do we respond? Yes, we may identify them. We may understand that they are dangerous, but how do we help people who are trapped in them to come out? Who is this Jesus that you've been talking about? The Christ to whom we call these people out of the cults? Well, the Apostle Paul knew that this was very important. Even as he pointed out the various false teachings, he pointed all the more to Jesus as the only antidote to the challenge and danger of false teachers. 
He goes at length to describe who Jesus is and what he has done. In Colossians chapter 1 from verses 13 to 20. And if you look at these verses very well, Paul uses a certain word that is found in verse 18. The word preeminence. Now the word preeminence can mean of first importance. It can mean top priority, something paramount. It can mean first in honor, first in exaltation. And when he uses this word to describe Jesus, he puts Jesus in a unique category above and beyond any religious teacher. He puts his work and his teachings above and beyond any that has ever existed. In fact, in these passages, he points out a number of things that are worthy of our attention. And again, as I speak of this, I credit one of our brothers called Daniel Gachuki, who recently spoke about the sufficiency of Christ at one of the conferences in Nairobi, at the Proclaim Conference to be specific. Looking at this passage, he pointed out the preeminence of Jesus in four areas. The preeminence of Jesus in his person, the preeminence of Jesus in his power, the preeminence of Jesus in his place and position in the church, and the preeminence of Jesus in his passion and his sufferings. Let's look at that briefly and see what that might mean for believers who are under threat of false teachers and their teachings, especially in our day. You will notice that the Apostle Paul not only tells us that we need to continue in Jesus just as we began, but he takes the time to explain why this is extremely important. He describes the person of Jesus as one who is the image of the invisible God. As you well know, God is spirit and therefore cannot be seen, cannot be touched. But God who is rich in mercy and in his great wisdom has revealed himself in the person of Jesus. In fact, Paul says that it pleased God that the, all the fullness should dwell in him and that is Jesus Christ. Meaning that through the visible Jesus who has a human body, we can know more about God who is invisible. He is the exact imprint of God. When you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. And essentially what he is saying is that Jesus is God. While many of these false teachers may claim to be special and anointed and in fellowship with the angels, they cannot equal Jesus in any way because Jesus is not just one of them. Jesus is above and beyond them because he is God. And then he goes further and he says that Jesus is not just God, but he is also the creator of everything. That he is the firstborn of our all creation. That Jesus, not only is he God, but he is before everything that has ever been created. He is the firstborn. Now I know that there are a number of false religious groups that have read this passage and concluded that Jesus being the firstborn means he's a created being. That he was created first and then through him all other things were created. A point in the case of that teaching being from the Jehovah's Witnesses. But this usage of the word actually means that Jesus is of first importance. He is preeminent. He is before. He is outside of the created things. 
which is why the apostle Paul goes further and he says that Jesus has created everything, visible and invisible, the big and the small. Let me just quickly look at it so we can see how he says it. That for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, in all things have been created through him and for him. That this Jesus is the one through whom everything has been created and it has been created for his pleasure, for his glory, for his enjoyment. Now, someone who is the beginning and the goal of creation cannot at the same time be one of the created beings. And Paul wants them to understand that. That even everything that is, is because of him and is ultimately for him and for his benefit. But secondly, he tells us, that this Jesus is preeminent in his power. You see, Jesus has not just created the universe or creation as we know it, but he also sustains everything. He says that in him all things hold together. And what that tells us, that even the present order as we know it cannot exist apart from Jesus. That Jesus not only is he preeminent in the making of what is, but he sustains it until the consummation of all things. That's how unique, that's how wonderful Jesus is. And that is why he surpasses every other teacher who claims to have any special authority. But thirdly, we see that Jesus is preeminent in his position in the church. Paul describes him as the head of the body, the church. That Christ is sovereign even in his church. While he was in charge of the old creation, he is the same one who is in charge of the new creation, the redeemed people of God, the family of God. And over that family, Christ exercises authority, exercises sovereignty, enjoys honor and thanksgiving because he is the head. He is also the beginning and the firstborn from the resurrection, according to Paul. That Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. But we must also remember that his resurrection is a reminder of our own resurrection. That as the firstborn out of the dead, he anticipates a future resurrection for all of us. And because of that hope that we hold in the resurrection, we actually find a reason to stand in our faith. And having said that, Paul again is reminding our Colossian brothers, Jesus is preeminent. He is the one you must focus your eyes on. You do not need other do's and don'ts. You do not need any other qualifications. Just as you received Christ the Lord, continue therefore in him. Number four, which is the final one, he says Jesus is preeminent in his passion. That Jesus Christ did not just create, did not just rule over the church, but he himself purchased this very church by his own blood. Paul talks about Jesus who in his flesh has died that you and I, we who were Gentiles, may be reconciled to God. That we who are now believers have found reconciliation between us and the Holy God possible on account of the passions and the sufferings of Christ. 
And Paul essentially is saying, brothers, why would you want to move your focus from Jesus who is presented in this manner to the teachings of any person who claims to be a representative of God? Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is central. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is preeminent above all. And Paul, by painting a picture of who Jesus is and what he has done, he draws the Christian brothers to that desire to want to keep their eyes on Jesus and nowhere else. Now, may I say, brothers and sisters, that even in our day, the only antidote for false teachings is to go back to the centrality and the sufficiency of Christ Jesus. A church that is not teaching the centrality of Christ in salvation can really not bring its members to the truth of the gospel. Jesus is the only answer to the offers of the false teachers which are not enough. Jesus provides not only fullness in him, but he provides freedom and fellowship for all those who believe. And Paul, just as he advises the Colossian brothers to beware of the false teachings and the false teachers in their midst, so is he charging us in our day that we must watch out for those false teachers. We must not let them act as our judge or disqualify us from our price or seek to rob us of our freedom. Rather, looking to Jesus who is the reality, Jesus who is the head, Jesus who is the sufficient savior, we may stand firm for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. May the Lord bless you so much. As you think through this, as you look around us and identify the dangers from false teachers that threaten us as a church today, but even more importantly, as you stand firm in the sufficiency of scripture and the centrality of Christ. Learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. Visit us at africanapologetics.org.